0: You can't have agility without reliability supply chain leader mike whitman shares this and other insights from nearly three decades at johnson and johnson with Tracelinks roddy martin on this episode of the patient driven
1: supply network so mike talk a little bit about your roles i know you've come up through the ranks uh and led great big supply chains like uh like pinnacle and like mars and and now you know helping pharma companies in their supply chains Talk a little bit about your experience and how you've evolved your understanding of agility and how to build it. So, welcome once again to the Tracing Thought Leader series. So, my background uh, I've got 40 years
0: of experience in supply chain. Started off on the shop floor as an operator right out of high school, making Tylenol on third shift. So, kind of doesn't get much more ground floor than that. Um, so, I describe my supply chain experience from being top to bottom and side to side. And then I went from the shop floor all the way up to chief supply chain officer for Pinnacle Foods is my last role. And side to side in that I've, I've worked functionally in planning, sourcing, manufacturing, delivery, uh, technology. My degree is in accounting, so I have a good financial background. Um, so really side to side and top to bottom. I spent the first almost 30 years of my career with Johnson & Johnson where my last role was running the supply chain for their consumer business in North America, about an $8 billion business, and then moved over to the food industry and spent the last 10 years running supply chains for Mars, chocolate business in North America, and then as the chief supply chain officer for Pinnacle Foods, which is a center of store grocery business and uh, the number two player in frozen, was the number two player in frozen foods before their acquisition a couple of years ago by Conagra.
1: So how have you seen agility evolve? You know, in the days when we were all supply driven, right? Agility was almost in the same connotation as lean. So how fast can you get it to the shelf? Well, now we're saying, how fast can you recover from a disruption, which is a very different perspective to to agile and end-to-end supply chain. So how have you sort of seen that evolve?
0: You know, it's a great question, Roddy. I had an interesting upbringing because I spent the first 20 years of my career in the Tylenol business. So I was in the factory that made the Tylenol that was tampered with in 1982 and in 1986, where there were unfortunate deaths associated with those tamperings. And I was there when the FBI and the FDA showed up to start the investigation. So Um, The idea of responding, being resilient and responding to unplanned anomalies in the marketplace is actually not new. Um, It's just at a whole new level, I think, because of the scale of the COVID response that we've seen lately being a global pandemic. But, um, you know, it's not a new concept. And and I had the benefit of going through, uh, if there can be a benefit to, to, you know, really terrible things like that, I had the benefit of going through that personally and being part of the team that had to respond Uh, both as an operator and a supervisor back in those days um, and handling some of the scheduling uh, to to that major disruption in our supply chain and our manufacturing capabilities. You know, and I I take that and I piece together my experience over the years and methodologies ranging all the way back to quality circles and learning the difference between a corrective response uh, or corrective action and a preventive action, making sure something never happens again and having, you know, a separate focus between those two. Um, all the way through the Six Sigma and Lean work that I did with Johnson & Johnson and applying those tools all along the way. So this concept of of agility and resiliency is not new. I think we've just recently experienced it on a scale that was really unimaginable for for us as a a global pandemic through COVID. And it's illustrated for businesses like life science businesses and and, in pharmaceuticals, medical devices that, while the development cycles, and frankly the approval cycles for their drugs or for the devices may be significantly longer than really what I've experienced on the CPG side or what uh, the tech industry experiences. um, That doesn't mean that that you can have your mindset be one where you think in terms of months and years when other industries have been thinking in terms of days and weeks. And post COVID, we have to think in terms of hours um, and our responsiveness. Now, we may not be able to turn on or turn off a supply chain within a few hours, but we need to be able to make decisions, make future commitments, um, whether it's to customers. Uh, I have a, a firm that I'm doing some work with that's a major provider of drugs to the government um, in the COVID response, and and uh, the the head of supply chain literally gets a phone call from. Uh, senior governor, government officials and, and heads of the CDC and needs to have a response within an hour. So uh, the scale and the speed of resiliency I think has changed dramatically and the scale of, of the need for resiliency has changed dramatically.
1: You know what's, what's really interesting is if you just go back uh, five years, um, you know visibility was the holy grail in end-to-end supply chain. We said well you know we can't see upstream and we can't see downstream, and it generally referred to product, right? So we can't see where our inventory is. We can't see what the CMOs, contract manufacturers, are delivering, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but as we've gone further down the road of living through uh, COVID-19 we start to understand that actually, yes, it is about the product and visibility of the product, but most importantly, it's about visibility of the disruptive event. You know, you can't have agility without reliability. And, and And I want you to play on that because I think anybody sitting listening saying, well, Hey, you know, I got to build agility. We 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 don't we aren't that resilient. We've we've demonstrated that we broke down a couple of places in our supply chain. So, I got to figure out where to start. And and I want you to start with a point of, you know, where are you tracking and building your base understanding of your own reliability because it's not magic, right? You can't suddenly produce products if you've got unreliable supply. There's bottom line, there's certain things that just don't work. Talk a little bit about that reliability and, and how, you know, every site has issues. Every manufacturing company has issues they have to deal with. Some are serious, some are not serious. You've got to figure it out and look at it in terms of reliability. So let me let me ask you to talk a little bit about your experience in that sense. Sure,
0: sure. Uh, you know, I've mentioned that during my time uh, driving Six Sigma and lean at J&J, one of the kind of back of the envelope exercises I wanted to understand when we talked about defects per million and opportunities for failure was how many times, uh, how many opportunities there were in a supply chain to fail in. and And our, our supply chain was not a huge supply chain. And I did the back of the envelope calculation. If you actually think about all the individual pieces of equipment, all the individual materials, all the transactions going on every day, the, the different items that are being run on the lines that can fail, the quality attributes, etc., We came up with an estimate of between three and 500,000 opportunities for failure in our supply chain in, on wow. a given day. It wow. was a massive number you know, when you've got that many opportunities, you have to have fundamental reliability as the foundation for, for agility and resilience. And, you know, when I, when I think about agility, agility for me is, is a bit more planned. It's an opportunity to say, where do I want to be flexible and where do I not, how quickly do I need to respond? And, and, you know, what do I want to build capabilities around that where resiliency is really about responding to the unplanned. Right. And, um, You know, if if I think about that theme planned versus unplanned, it's from a reliability perspective, in order to plan the future, I need to know what my current capability is. I need to know that I can reliably deliver against that capability. Now, that doesn't have to be perfection, certainly, but it has to be at a high enough level where the, the majority of the time I can deliver against my requirements, primarily to my customers and consumers more than anyone else right, but also to the internal nodes that eventually link together in partnership to deliver to those customers. And then in order for me to be resilient and and respond to the unplanned, I need to know, I need to have a predictable foundation. I need to know that as as I need to react, and change, I need to know what I know and can rely on, and I need to know what the variables are that I cannot control, right? And so that I can then start to attack those uncontrolled variables. If I have things that are out of my control that should be within my control, like my fundamental OEE performance in manufacturing, or my adherence to schedule, my ability to, to make in manufacturing at the item level what was planned for me in the time frame that it was planned. If I can't do those at a, at a fairly high level, let's say at least in the you know, 90% range on adherence to schedule, certainly in the upper 60s to 70% range on, on operational equipment effectiveness, then I don't have a predictable supply chain that I can rely on. So as soon as when when an unplanned event hits me, it's going to knock me much further off balance and throw the whole system out of whack than if I have a pretty resilient supply chain or capable, reliable supply chain. When I get hit by a punch, it's going to hurt and I'm going to flinch a little bit. But I know that I I can take that punch because I've been through it before. I've got a fundamentally sound and reliable supply chain. And that's built at the ground level, right? From my suppliers all the way through my manufacturing plants into my distribution logistics channel. And it's knit together by my planning organization.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and you, as, as you were talking um, about reliability, you know, my, my mind casts back to my South African breweries, SAB Miller days, when, you know, they had sites all over the world and one of the goals was to be able to put the performance of every single site against on a matrix of two dimensions uh, and to be able to look at every site in the world and how they were performing. Um, and, And the point was that, you wanted standardized problem solving processes now i'm not talking about militaristic problem solving processes i'm just talking about if everybody is having this kind of a problem with this kind of piece of a packaging equipment let's not all solve these things separately let's try and share so so my question is how well do you think you know companies are codifying that standard approach to managing issues across their operations or are People generally running around the day after, like chickens without heads, scrambling to fix problems and get the system up and running and saying, oh, thank goodness we got that event out of the way. Let's sit and wait for the next event. How well do you think it's being codified? Well, of
0: course, Roddy, it's all over the place. You can't really stereotype and say as an industry, it's either good or bad. It depends on right. the individual company, the level of resources, the attention. That they put to it uh, an effort against it and more than anything else quite frankly that's all driven by their experience for those companies that have had some significant negative experiences they put a lot more energy against codifying right uh, than those that haven't and i would say secondly it depends on their their focus on process. And in, in my experience uh companies generally you know we we talk about the people process technology kind of leadership now uh attributes or dimensions of a business but I think culturally businesses tend to be either more people oriented or more process oriented. And I, I hear that a lot spoken that way in firms that I was at which tended to be more people oriented. Um, my, my approach was to bring more process to balance the people. And when I say people oriented, it's they rely on people and the, the, the brains, right? I can, you know, kind of the philosophy is if I bring smart people into a room, we can figure this out. And that's absolutely true. And that's really step one, bring smart people into the room and figure it out. But then once you figure it out, document it, codify it, put it into a process. Because particularly in supply chain, when everything is repeated thousands, millions of times, you need to have a repeatable process. That's what gives you reliability is knowing that you can follow the same process and get the same outcome every time, right? The opposite of insanity. And you know, so you have to take both of those steps. So it takes a balance of the people focus and the process focus. And then we all know, in, in my view, technology is the enabler for that. Technology becomes a method or a tool that allows us not only to codify many of those processes, but then to also enforce the processes. If you use the technology, you can't really violate the process in many cases. Um, and to be able to measure performance, get real-time information, get insights and visibility into it. So, so that's why you know, it's, a, it's a very age-old axiom, people process technology, but I still love it today. I think it applies very appropriately in this world of agility and resilience. And then I've re- recently added the leadership, the fourth leg of that.
1: Right.
0: And I like it. that,
1: by the way. I think it's yeah, very and, true.
0: And it's because it, at Driving Change, I was always big, I, be, I was a big believer that you create the process And then you figure out who are the people, what are the people skills that are necessary to to execute the process, and then you enable it with technology. There was a logical sequence to to attacking those three dimensions. But then what I learned was it took way too long. And the real linchpin for driving speed, which is, is a key element in agility and resiliency, was to have the right leadership, right? You gotta have the right leaders in place. And when you want to drive change, you need some of those leaders You need all of them to be receptive to the change. You need all of them to be focused and energized and inspired by the change. But you need some of them who have experience with the change, who've done it before, who have the confidence to know that it can be done so that when they when they bump into a roadblock, they don't say, oh, well, maybe I was on the wrong path. And they go back and retrench. They say, no, I've done this before. This is just a hiccup. Let's figure out how to get around this and move forward.
1: You know, and I and I think, you know, just you bringing up people, process, technology, and I absolutely agree with you that in those companies that I've had the privilege to work with where there are very strong leaders in operations, they you tend to see it in the way they run their supply chains, right? I mean, they take charge and they get things done. But But I want to get to the technology piece because I think, you know, in many ways we've been you know, I don't want to use the word misled, but I, but I think we've, you know, one of my bosses always used to say, you know, you IT people are purveyors of hope, right? Is, you know, I hope that when you buy the system, it's going to solve the problem. Well, we all know that that is not the case, right? But I, but I do think that there's one really bright star on the horizon. Uh, and and in, and in good time, I think it's going to be clearer. And that is this analytics. You know, we've we've always um, sort of looked at historical data and used historical data to answer questions we know we had. How many times did this break? What did it cost us? Was it always the same product? Was it the same machine? That's pretty rudimentary reporting of, of um, stuff historically. But I do think that we're getting to the stage, uh, and, and this is where your leadership piece comes into its own, where... We need to start thinking about the questions we hadn't even thought about trying to answer because it wasn't possible before. Because data was spread around the whole business and it was just damn difficult to bring it all together. So I think, you know, a really good reinforcing factor around leadership is leaders starting to ask the questions that the business didn't even know it can answer. And using augmented technologies to go and look for those answers and improve processes in ways that people never thought were possible. So, you know, what would you say to that comment about supply chain leaders and analytics? Because My experience is when I talk to most supply chain leaders about analytics, go talk to the CIO. That's a technology question. It's not a technology question.
0: You know, it's interesting. Let me digress a little bit. When I go back in my career, I mean, I I believe that analytical firepower is the essence of any kind of business improvement. And I go way back in my career, what actually got me recognized as an operator um, and promoted me to a supervision was not only the fact that I was pursuing my, my education and degree, but I would, in my free time, I would attack special projects because quite frankly, I might get bored and I loved using my mind. And it was really my analytical firepower. I went in as an operator and found a pool of product that could be reworked or dispositioned, et cetera, and figured out how to save the company a quarter million dollars over the course of about 90 days. And it was all a result of just seeing a problem going and gathering the data, analyzing it, and coming up with a proposal. And, you know, that was what we expected people to do. I had the privilege of working in a, in a manufacturing plant and was very progressive at the time because this was the early 80s, where as a supervisor, I was expected not to spend a lot of time on the shop floor directing people and telling them what to do. That was a certain part of my responsibility. But we had a team concept where where the team managed horizontally, and it freed up my time to just I set the goals for the team, have the team embark against those goals as a supervisor. Then I had a lot of time to go off and be what we called a project manager. Instead of having separate process engineers or project managers separate from supervision, we owned it all as an individual. And that really taught me the the power of analytics and the importance of going out and and collecting data, monitoring performance through performance measures, looking for opportunities, collecting data and and running the analytics. So if I roll forward 30 or 35 years, it's interesting because in the early days of the concept of a giant data warehouse and analytics, I was a bit of a skeptic um, because I was running on a lean budget and everybody was telling me that the software firms were coming in and telling me, you need a massive data warehouse and don't worry if you build it, they will come. In other words, if you build the data warehouse, you'll just start analyzing the data. If you get some data scientists, and you'll find some really cool stuff. And that just seemed a little bit too far-fetched for me, um, because I've always been a big fan of focus, direction, clear goals, you know, measurable results, etc. And uh, you know, I would say I wasn't, I wasn't an early adopter, certainly not leading edge. Uh, But I've become a huge believer now that as we start to collect this data, the power of the analytics, the using machine learning, using concepts like artificial intelligence now, the quantum leap forward in analytical firepower that it's giving us and the ability to harvest data for connections that we didn't naturally see before, because they can look at uh, data in a relational basis you know with billions of bytes of data at, you know in, in a split second versus me as a human being look at in a more traditional hierarchical relationship um with you know only a few thousand bytes in a, in a few minutes so uh i think the technology has has really enabled that what i thought was a far-fetched concept 10 or 15 years ago to truly be a competitive advantage when you can get your hands around it today. So it's, it's worthy of an investment. Now, that being said, you still have to have some direction. You gotta, you, right. you need to, generally what you're trying to improve upon, are you trying to go after improving your customer service, right, becoming a much more patient-centric supply chain, for example. In that case, it starts to narrow down the data that you do look at. It's still billions of bytes because you're looking for unrelated connection points that can allow you to become more agile and resilient towards that ultimate mission of patient uh, centricity. However, It's not like, well, I wanna be more patient centric and I wanna improve my costs and I wanna have less cash and I wanna be higher quality. I mean, that's that's way too broad, right? So at some point, even artificial intelligence can't crunch enough numbers and and enough data for that. So I think it requires some initial focus, uh, a focus area or a priority, a primary set of goals for an organization, but then getting your hands around as much data and applying advanced analytics um, as quickly as possible can be incredibly enlightening. And I see in some of the consulting work that we do um, that we can get our hands around an example is spend cubes and procurement. What used to take a few months to build now with the latest technologies, we can go into an enterprise and have a spend cube built
1: and analyzed within two weeks. It's right. Now, I, I, I do think that, uh, that analytics is the game changer on the one hand. But, you know, unfortunately, the technology world, we sometimes get ahead of ourselves. uh, And and I think we overset expectations. And then what happens is that people who are not necessarily deeply steeped in technology uh, really get cautious because there's lots of money at play. We don't have great success stories. And, And I think we've got to learn to get into these things slowly. And I do think it starts with people like you who really do understand the process, who've been in the trenches, that can ask those questions that prod people who are technologically orientated in analytics to say, well, let's have a look and see what we can put together from an analytics point of view, because we may find stuff that we never even knew that we could get hold of. I mean, I go back to my one benchmark story, and that is PNG with their billion dollars worth of stockouts, and when they went and analyzed them from the shelf back to supply, they found four billion dollars worth of problems. And you ask yourself, what, well, how on earth does that happen? Well, they found stuff they didn't even know existed, right? And so I think that's the kind of opportunity that looks, uh, that looks us, stares us in the face going forward into the future, using analytics and data smartly. If you were meeting with somebody who had aspirations of being a business leader in supply chain. What's the one piece of sage advice that you would give them? You know, and and one of the one of the pieces of advice is you're not allowed to give is Don't go there. It's really complicated. But what piece of sage advice would you give them to really keep a north star in their minds going forward? Can I can I have two? Can I give you two? Oh, you can have as many as you want. Well,
0: I'm sure we don't have time for that because, um, as most people that know me, I can go on and on. Uh, with a lot of passion, but um, I would say number one, uh, as a business leader, right, and this kind of gets back to your, our, our discussion around data and analytics. Um, you have to ask the question, what's the point, right? Well, you you have to constantly be focused and have a bias towards not only action but results, right? You know, and I'm a process person, so I tell my folks, I'm going to hold you accountable 100% for, for results and 90% for process, and they're like, well, that adds up to 190, how, did, how do you think about that? And I said, because it doesn't count. If you're not delivering the results, that's why you're 100% accountable for results. No results, no performance, no bonus, right? but I also need that process that backs it up and makes it repeatable, right? So 90% of what I'm gonna consider also has to have, how right, you take those results and develop a repeatable process to get there. So it's, a, it's an unabashed bias and focus on delivering results with the process to back it up and make it repeatable and reliable. And then there's, uh, you know, the other area is, is a very soft area, but I'd say it's very important, is having a mindset of yes, if, right? Anything is possible under the right conditions. So when, you know, if the demand folks come to you and say, can we handle this, this giant spike in demand? Can we launch a product in, uh, in a few months? Look at what the world is doing to develop COVID vaccines, right? Which, which would have never been imagined before this pandemic. But now the, the pandemic is breaking down a lot of the old traditional barriers and rules. So if you have a mindset that no is an unacceptable answer and teach that mindset to your organization, everything is a yes, but it's a yes if, it's a conditional yes. It, the answer can be yes, if we can accomplish the, same, the certain things. Now, in some cases, the if may literally be changing the laws of physics and time. Right. In most cases, you'll say, well, you know, that's either not really possible or it's way too expensive. But what, what it does is it opens the mind up to the possibilities and gets you focused on the barriers that prevent you from getting there and eliminating those barriers, and once you can do that with, your, especially with constituents that may be a little negative, and they, they really respond negatively to that, no, the yes, if, and then walking them through what the if conditions are, whether they're business viable, whether they're, they're costly enough, whether they violate the laws of physics, actually engages them in the solution, brings them in with you, and, and pulls people together to align the objectives and outcomes and the purpose that you're after. And it just opens your mind up to the possibilities. So always think in terms of yes, if,
1: and then focus on
0: eliminating those if
1: barriers. And, and I'm going to call that my my own kind of interpretation of that is a trade-off mentality, right? What are you going to trade off? If you want to achieve this, then what are we trading off as a consequence? Because blindly saying yes without understanding the trade-offs and the implications, you're going to disappoint someone or you're going to kill yourself in the process. So so I think...
0: I mean, Roddy, I, I can't let you get in the last word without challenging you. Just make sure trade-offs never means it's a negotiation because that'll dumb everything down. <laughs>
1: Well, to some extent, I agree, right? And a negotiation is not a bad thing. If everybody's got data and they are making accurate decisions on accurate data, then the negotiation leads to a better result. When somebody has bad data and someone else has good data, then the negotiation doesn't go to a good place, right?
0: That's the problem. Making well-informed decisions. Exactly. And the, data in the analytics give you that information to make a well-informed decision. You know, and along with your experience. Now, what I've learned is the best leaders don't wait for you know a perfect answer in all of the right. data. The best leaders only have their their decisions are based about 30% on the data and 70% on their experience and gut feel, so for, because you need speed. Of action when you're going to be resilient and agile, so you have to combine that experience with the data and and the uh, and the information to make well-informed decisions. Mike,
1: as always, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and that's really sage advice. And uh, and certainly, you know, this whole series of thought leadership. Uh, uh, web recorded interviews I mean they're chapters of a book right and and I think that that's what's changed right before we would buy books with a chapter from How Lee and a chapter from Martin Christopher today we do a series of webinars and in four hours you can watch you know 10 recorded web interviews and you can learn a hell of a lot about supply chain so especially from people like you Mike thanks for making the time it's an absolute pleasure to have you Uh, on our series and uh, thank you once again
0: Thank you Roddy it's always a blast